This is The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. I'm Madeline. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing, and please rate us on iTunes. Is it true that you can leap over a chair from a standing position? It depends on the size of the chair. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit. The Big Electron. The Big Electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Of course you feel it. Now what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing. Get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome, welcome to The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. And I'm Anahita. Thanks for listening. Uh, we have a good show for you today. Good, not great. <laughs> <laughs> Who's to say? I think it's a great show. Stay tuned. <laughs> we'll all find out together. Yes. Exactly, yes. So um, I think I want to start the show by asking you, Adam, a question. What's that? What is cancer? What? Yeah. I have no idea. Why would you ask me such a question? Okay, fine. Moving other on. Than, <laughs> other than we've discussed it before the show, and I, and I prompted you to, to ask that question. So, uh, cancer is a thing that um, that happens in your body sometimes. Cancer happens? Cancer happens. <laughs> it's a variation on another phrase you may, you may know. Um, what it is... At a really, really tiny scale, just so it's clear what we're talking about in the upcoming little while here, is it's a bunch of cells in your body that normally shouldn't be growing anymore or not very fast, and they are just out of control, growing and replicating themselves, growing really fast, uh, and in places they shouldn't be. That's a cancer. So uh, Okay, so this can happen to, like, any cell in the body, theoretically, I guess? I suppose so. Um, some cells grow and divide and change more rapidly than others, and I mm -hmm. suppose they would probably be more vulnerable to okay. that sort of thing. Um, but um, Like skin cells. Right. Good point. That's, yeah. why, that's why we had a lot of skin cancer, hmm. and that's why it can get repaired quickly, because we're kind of... Since our skin cells reproduce, replicate so fast, they're also kind of used to repairing so fast. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so, so then I have a further question. Okay. So I have a benign nerve tumor on my arm. Okay. And I got that checked out, and I was told, don't worry about it. You just have this lump on your arm for the rest of your life, which is fine. But why are some cancers just lumps that you can forget about or are removed and others are dangerous. Well, I well, think the question should be, why are some tumors benign? Yeah, yeah exactly. And That's others. a vocab issue. Yeah. So what you have is a, a benign tumor. And a tumor is uh, sort of a blob-like collection of cells, um, sort of a blob-like collection of cells that is growing in one spot. Mm -hmm. And it may not have this out-of-control, you know, runaway cell growth thing going on and that's a benign tumor it's like you got this blob of cells it's not very nice necessarily but it's not going to harm anything and it's not going to get worse um a malignant tumor is one that can become cancerous meaning that hmm. it's the regulations that go on inside the cell that normally keep things under control aren't working properly and it might uh, grow more and get bigger and eventually expand or even move into new parts of your body and that if you had that if you had a malignant tumor mm -hmm. then it would it would grow out of control in that place and eventually some cells in that tumor would dislodge and move to another part of your body and that's called metastasis so if you've heard of cancer metastasizing that's what that means it's move uh, cancer cell moves from one spot to another sort of forms a colony and then it can really mess up stuff. Mm -hmm. so. And that is when we hear that it's like stage three or stage four, it's right? How Not far really. it's maybe how far it's invaded. So. Not really familiar with the stages, so don't know. Mm. But 
I'm yeah, a plant I, biologist, but uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that's that's when when you call it stage three or four, it's when it has metastasized. That is when it has gone to other parts of the body. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, metastasis is that process, mm. mm-hmm. moving to a new part of the so, body. So, so how sense. do they how do they know where like if they find a tumor on your lungs, but they're like, no, it's actually not lung cancer. It's actually breast cancer or pancreatic cancer? Yeah, so yeah. cancers aren't defined by where they're located. It's defined by the kind of cell, right? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. defined It's defined by the place in your body that it originated. That it and that's the same as saying what kind of cell it originally was. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, I learned this from the uh, American ca- uh, Cancer Society, and you can find more information on their website if you would like to, to know. But if you have a cancer that developed on your pancreas or whatever, Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. it spread to another part. Then sometimes the cells, even in other parts of your body, are still going to look under a microscope like pancreas cells, or they'll have some oh. resemblance to it. And that's that how sense. they can figure out where it came from. But they can't so always. So it's not figure that. What's that? So, so it's, it's not as complicated as we thought it was. Yeah. <laughs> not quite. Yeah, not quite. It just it has some physical resemblance to the cells of where it came from. Where it, it came still, from. it still each looks like cell that. Cell has a specific type of well it's sort of certain characteristics that are related to which genes are turned on in those Mm -hmm. cells and which ones aren't um sometimes they don't know though and that happens often enough they can't tell where it came from and that is called a cancer of unknown primary they don't know where it came from those happen too happens all the time Hmm. they don't know the primaries yeah they don't know the primary location where it developed so that can happen too so all of these things are bad so, right. <laughs> that's that's the official scientific description. Bad. So, so I just looked up the stages real quick. Um, so stage one is if it's localized into one part of the body. So like in your lung, for example. Mm-hmm. Stage two is if it's locally advanced. So it might have gone Grown. past the lung, but it's like on the outside of the lung now. If you, okay. It's maybe if you started inside the lung, now it's moved outside of the lung. Or if it went to, like, the other lung. Well, or the other, really. well stage three is also locally advanced, and that's when it kind of depends on the type of tumor, but that's when it can move on from, like, one lung to the other uh, or okay. moving from, like, a lung to the areas around the lung. And right, I, right, right. It's kind of uh. hard for me to be specific from the information I'm reading. And then stage four is when it's spread to a different organ. Or different part of the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and they they travel through the blood. That's how they get from one way, one organ to the other. That's my understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> but they just kind of I don't know exactly how it works. We should look this up. But well, there's there's one thing I can tell you about that. One of the thing that cancer or that malignant tumors have to do that makes them so bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to recruit blood vessels. They have oh, to somehow prompt chemically the creation of blood vessels that will feed them mm-hmm. oxygen or they wouldn't themselves be any, any dangerous at all. So it makes sense that that blood vessel is there for them to access if one of those cells dislodges and is able mm-hmm. to survive the movement to another organ. So all that stuff, again, bad. But it does happen. And, yeah, uh, we hear that a lot. It's, mm-hmm. it's um, an inevitable part of... Um, uh, of just being a cell in mm-hmm. our bodies that given enough time, mm-hmm. you know, it would lose the function of that machinery that keeps everything in check and become cancerous. And become, I mean, it just starts dividing, dividing so rapidly that it's like, it just loses control and that's how yeah. it becomes a tumor and or malignant. Yeah. Over time, the machinery in these cells that keeps things in check falls mm-hmm. apart. And yeah. not all of us are eventually going to get any kind of cancer but mm-hmm. um if we if we all were around for hundreds and hundreds of years we probably would if right because yeah. these cells are constantly you dividing. know dividing and, mm-hmm. and changing and experiencing mutations and things that eventually lead to that process breaking down so mm-hmm. understanding where cancer is coming from is pretty important to all of us because we all uh you know have the same kind of body basically mm-hmm. so yeah. Science has an answer, though. You, you may be wondering why we've been talking about this. <laughs> yeah. so. so science has an answer to fighting um, cancer or this 
you know, cells multiplying way beyond the speed that it should be or that, you know, is comfortable. And that is radiation therapy. Right. That is a form of therapy for, for cancer. So you've probably heard about chemotherapy mm-hmm. and radiation therapy. It's somewhat similar. So if chemotherapy is using like medicines or chemicals to fight cancer. Yeah, like, like pharmaceuticals, pills that you take or one love pills, but. Then radiochemistry, chemi- radiotherapy <laughs> would be using high energy radiation to fight the cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And the, the general idea, if, as I think we'll hear a bit more about in the upcoming minutes, mm-hmm. is that it, it targets cells which are dividing, that is cells which are growing. Mm-hmm. And obviously a cancer cell is growing out of control. So it's main idea. It's the main show is to stop that. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, we had, not a few weeks, a few days ago, we had the opportunity to talk to um, a, a, a person from <coughs> the Los Alamos National Laboratory uh, who was here at the university. And she gave, a, she gave a talk at the Department of Chemistry and she um, talked to us a little bit about what she does. And you might be wondering why we're talking about cancer and prefacing um, her interviews. She is a program, not a program, manager, can't remember. Director? Director. No idea. No <laughs> she idea. is a isotope production, pro- she is the isotope production program manager. There we go. <laughs> Center fielder for the Albuquerque Isotopes minor league baseball team. <laughs> I'm sorry, that may be next week's uh, yeah. interview. I may be mixing up. <laughs> no, that's the center. Okay. Um, but she works at Los Alamos, Na- Los Alamos National Laboratory down in New Mexico. Yes. And um, she, as Anahita says, she works on making isotopes. And more specifically, uh, isotopes that are targeted to cancer treatment and mm-hmm. radiation therapy. Um, so, aha, and it all comes together. Yes. But before we get to that interview, I want to just discuss what a national laboratory is. Yep. So, um, our interview with, is with Dr. Eva Birnbaum and, um, she works as Jackie said at Los, Los Alamos National Laboratory, which is, um, in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so a national Albuquerque. Yes. And so a national lab is Adam. A national lab is a lab yes. which is funded nationally. Yes. That is, it's, it's funded by the federal government, specifically uh, the U.S. Department of Energy. Mm-hmm. And they created these uh, national laboratories, I mean, gradually, you know, yes. building over time. But they, they started just before World War II. And I'm getting this information yeah. from energy.gov, which is the Department of Energy's um, website. And over the years, they have been doing all sorts of uh, top-notch research into anything even remotely related to the Department of Energy's um, interests and to just yes. the interest of promoting so since uh, science this is, in general. Since these are federally funded laboratories, they're usually tasked with specific goals that meet the na- the nation's interest. So Los Alamos, specifically, their their task is to deal with national security. Mm-hmm. National nuclear security. National right. nuclear security. And so that can have to do with, you know, preserving what radioactive materials we have, you know, using them as a defense mechanism, things like that. So yeah. it's it's the full range. It's using it to yeah, fight, using right. it to cure, and yeah. just saving it. So if you're wondering what the, what the connection is between, you know, the radiotherapy for cancer treatments right. that we've been talking about for a few minutes here and the things you may have heard of Los Alamos National Laboratory mm-hmm. for in the past, which go kaboom, yeah. um, then the connection is the nuclear physics and the nuclear chemistry and the concept of radioactivity right. and so on. Right. So they started back in the 40s. Um, they started back in the 40s because of World War II, mm-hmm. but now they've kind of developed or evolved to be these labs that are more than just what you hear. Mm-hmm what it was like in the forties. Um, so, and they so s- I mean, radioactive materials, there's, there's only so much material on earth, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're not using them for the right, if we're not using them in the most responsible way, we're just wasting it. 
And so that's that's part of our national security is protecting these natural resources we have. Yeah, so there's currently 17 national labs um, all around the country. And yeah, you've probably heard of Los Alamos or Santilla, Lawrence Livermore. Um, one that is close to us is Oregon National Lab, Fermi mm-hmm. National Lab, Ames National Lab. So there's, there's a whole bunch. Um, of national labs that are tasked where with specific um, areas that they are that they will cover. So, uh, like we said, like we said, uh, we have a pretty cool interview with Dr. Eva Birnbaum mm-hmm. from the Los Alamos National Lab. So check, uh, we're gonna play that, and we'll be right back. Today with us, we have a really great guest. Um, so why don't you start by introducing yourself? Tell us, of course, your name and what you do. All right. My name is Eva Birnbaum. I am a chemist. I come from Los Alamos National Laboratory, and I am the program manager for the Los Alamos Isotope Program. That sounds really sciencey and fun to me. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I'm also a chemist, so um, I really appreciate that there are so many different kinds of chemistry. Um, How did you end up doing isotopes? Well, sort of by accident, actually. Um, I didn't start out doing radiochemistry or isotopes. I, mm-hmm. My training is much more classic inorganic chemistry, uh, just looking at the properties of metals. Um, but this job opening came up, and I said, well, I think, you know, a lot of my skills can kind of be translated over. And so I, I applied for it, and here I am. Well, that's, that's really cool. I, I kind of, um, I think that that happens a lot, that you just kind of take the opportunities you have and the experiences you have and see what works out. But how did you get into science then? That tends to be more of a <laughs> lifelong passion, or is that was that a wandering accident too? Well, um, so actually my dad is an inorganic chemist. Oh, okay. And so uh, I think there was some sort of just motivation to learn more about what what he did Mm -hmm. Um, and so I I ended up being a chemistry major and then just continued because I I really enjoyed it. Did he did he help you with chemistry or was he like you gotta learn it on your own? No no if he helped me with chemistry he argued about it so (laughs) (laughs) so I (laughs) sorry dad (laughs) but um yeah, he, uh, we, we talk science now, but mm-hmm. um, not so much when I was younger. It's kind of <laughs> funny. So maybe for us non-chemists, it would be helpful to um, have a reminder of what is an isotope and um, why would you want to make them? An isotope is really, there's just multiple forms of every element. And so the element is determined by the number of protons. And so uh, hydrogen has one proton, helium has two protons, and you can just march on through the whole periodic table. But each of those can have zero, one, two, three, or more neutrons. And those are the different isotopes of that element. Some isotopes occur naturally, and they're stable, and they make up all the different things that are around us. Other isotopes, depending on how many neutrons they have, may be unstable. And so what we're looking at is making these unstable radioactive elements. If you have radioactive elements where you don't want them, they can be very bad. But if you know what you're making and you put it in a useful place, they can be very useful. And so we make isotopes that are radioactive, but we can put them to work to do good things. Like? Like uh, for medical purposes. So some of the isotopes that we make are what are called positron emitters. And a positron um, is a type of radiation that... um, when it's emitted from an element, can take a picture on a camera. And so Mm. one of the most common um, radioisotopes that's used for positron emission tomography, which is just a fancy way of saying PET imaging for this, um, is is a fluorine compound um, that can be used to image cancer. So if you give people a compound with this type of radioactive fluorine in it, it concentrates in a tumor in their body. And so if you put the person in front of a PET camera, you can see exactly where the tumor or tumors are located. And then that's the first step then in in creating a treatment path for that patient. Cool. You would use isotopes that have a short half-life for that, right? 
Yes. The ones that, but you also make some that have really long half-lives too. So what would the helpful uses of those be? And before we go there, um, what is a half-life? I was going to ask that <laughs> next too. <laughs> so, so a half-life is uh, literally the amount of time when half of that isotope will decay or, or fall apart. So if you have a half-life of 25 days, which is the half-life of strontium-82, which is our main isotope that we make at Los Alamos, if you start with a curie, which is a measure of the radioactivity, in 25 days you'll have half a curie left. So it's the shorter the half-life, the faster it goes away. For imaging, it means the brighter your picture will be, you need to use less of that isotope. Um, but sometimes you need a longer half-life isotope, if you, depending on what you're imaging. So if you're imaging something that equilibrates very quickly in the body, you can use a very short half-life isotope and get a good picture. But if you want to image a, something that's actually a biological process, then you might have to use something longer lived so that the isotope can accumulate where where you need it to. So you have to tailor. Um, not every isotope is good for every application. And so you need people who can understand and look at all the different properties of an isotope to decide if it's going to be effective for what you want to use it for. So when you use an isotope with a shorter half-life, is there um, is a major concern um, getting that radioactive material to the hospital where it will be administered to a patient where then like it has to withstand the transportation and <laughs> that administration? That is a great question and the answer is a huge yes. Um, so to give an example, uh, I talked about strontium-82 as a 25 half-life, day half-life. Um, that's actually not the active imaging agent. Hmm. It's its daughter isotope, so it turns into rubidium-82, which is also radioactive. The rubidium-82 is what is the PET isotope that does, in this case, cardiac imaging. It images heart it, blood flow. Um, that's a 75-second half-life isotope. Oh, my gosh. And so, so obviously there's no way that you're going to package that up and truck it anywhere. And so the way that that isotope is used is through a device called a generator. So you take the strontium and you immobilize it on uh, a support like a, a ion exchange resin and then you push saline across that the strontium 82 stays stuck in the device but the rubidium 82 comes off and they do that right next to the pet camera and it's direct injected into the patient and they get their image in real time so one thing that's really good about very short half-life isotopes like rubidium is they do their work quickly. You mm -hmm. get your pictures, and by the time the patient is pulled out of the, the camera and walks out the door, there's no radioactivity left. And so there's no fewer negative effects. So there, there are a few numbers that you've been saying quite a bit, um, like strontium-82 or rubidium also 82. 82. Um, can you explain what those numbers mean? So the 82 is just an identifier for that particular isotope. So um, the 82 indicates the sum of the protons and neutrons that make up that unique isotope. So you can also, in addition to rubidium 82, which is radioactive, rubidium 85 and rubidium 87 are the two stable isotopes. And so if you went out and found a rock sample that had rubidium in it, it would be 82 and 85. That would be the isotopes there. And so when people talk about different radionuclides or isotopes, they usually mention the number because it identifies exactly which one you're talking about. And the different, even the different radioactive isotopes of a single element can have very, very different properties. So when we look at the periodic table, and we see like the atomic number that's assigned to each element. That's the most likely isotope you're going to find in nature, right? So the atomic number would match the number of protons. Oh, sorry, not atomic <laughs> number. I was yeah. thinking. Uh, you're talking mass. Yeah, I was yeah. talking. Yeah. So, so that would be an uh, the distribution of the the stable isotopes, mm -hmm. and so 
I don't know offhand the, the mass of rubidium, but yeah. it's probably around 86, so somewhere between... You know, I was going to say, that number is most likely the more stable ones. Yeah, Closer so to... it'll be an average of the distri- the natural distribution mm-hmm. of all the stable isotopes of that, of that element. Yes, okay. definitely. So you're starting with this pretty stable isotope that you can move around for storage reasons, and then you subject it to a treatment and it becomes a less stable one that you can take pretty pictures of, basically and then it is gone out of your system by the time you leave the building. So this is all one substance, right? Just being transformed from one thing to another over time? Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. So we take stable rubidium, we bombard it with protons, and we actually transmute some of it to a new element. So we're alchemists in a way because <laughs> we're changing that that stable rubidium into unstable strontium. And then that unstable strontium we collect in one place and some of it decays and turns back into a different rubidium isotope. And then that decays and turns into actually stable krypton gas. Hmm. Um, so... I feel like I need to so, see a periodic table to follow. I, I know it's, it's much easier, but it, yeah, it's you're you're really converting from one element to the next to the next until you get to a stable, a stable element at the mm-hmm. end of that chain. I guess it's important to to mention that when we talk about these elements, we're not talking solely about the elements that are in this case taken by a patient, right? They they come, they are coordinated or bonded to something else um, that then would allow the patients to take him or whatever and then but this is a sort of the active agent if we want to call it yes it, it would definitely be considered an active agent and the other thing is you know we we talk about these elements and isotopes the amount of mass that would be injected into a patient is is minuscule it is so so tiny um, when we have what we consider to be a large batch of of strontium-82. So this is right after we separate it from the target. You can't even see it. It's so little mass that the flask looks empty. It looks like we've we've separated nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But in reality, there could be enough in that empty-looking flask to lead to diagnostic procedures for Mm -hmm. tens of thousands of people. So you're... You're da- uh, ruining my hopes of just you being a, not only an alchemist, but you can make me radioactive gold. <laughs> yeah, I'm not making any radioactive gold. <laughs> so alchemy is good. I'm in favor of alchemy. Um, I do have a question, though. What's your original source of the stable rubidium? Where in nature do we find this substance? And I guess following up on that one, um, how do we make or how do you make uh, the strontium 82 uh, that then you can ship to to something else okay well uh, with enough with you know as much as much as you can tell us <laughs> yeah. I understand there's there's some uh, things that you can't tell us but what you can tell us no no I can tell you all about this I'm just thinking I'm not sure I know the answer of where, <laughs> where's our, our rubidium comes from um, I know there are certain minerals that naturally contain rubidium um, when we make our targets, which is what we we use to make the strontium, it's rubidium chloride salt. And so, you know, literally you can buy that from Aldrich or any common chemical manufacturer. Um, It just has to be in very, very high purity. And so in many ways, it's just like sodium chloride, it's just like table salt. And so what we do with that is we encapsulate it in a Inconel shell, and Inconel is just a very high-grade stainless steel. Um, and then we put it in front of a proton beam at the Lance accelerator at Los Alamos. And so that takes a extremely high-energy proton beam, and we bombard that target. And because those protons have such high energy, they knock out neutrons. And then that starts the process of converting that to um, to the strontium itself, the strontium-82. So you bombard it with a proton, it absorbs the proton, one atom will absorb a proton, it'll lose neutrons, and you're left with, with strontium-82. 
At that point, we take that target, we dissolve it in water because it's like salt, um, and then we do separation chemistry to isolate the strontium-82 from the other things that might be in there, including the starting material. And so we have to do that inside a hot cell um, because these targets at that point in time are very highly radioactive. And so we have a set of hot cells, which are big, thick, shielded concrete boxes um, with remote manipulator arms, which allow an operator to stand outside and remotely manipulate the things inside so that they can uh, be protected from the, the radiation. So you have robot arms. They're kind of robot arms, yeah. <laughs> they do what you this do. Gets better, this gets better every minute. <laughs> so I guess that kind of um, brings about a question I always have, um, which is, as scientists, we can understand that under the right conditions, uh, radioactivity is not something to be scared of. Under the right conditions, of course, with the right precautions. But um, the general public sees radioactivity as something very dangerous and and very scary. Um, how how do you or how does Los Alamos go about trying to stop the fears when you guys are working with these robot arms that are? <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a very good question because you know if we were careless with these materials, they would be very bad. Um, so when you work with very radioactive things, um, of course there's a lot of rules and regulations that you have to follow. Um, there's a lot of training that everybody has to get. Uh, you know, we don't just hire somebody off the street and say, you know, go play with the, the manipulators. <laughs> Darn. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and, and just make sure that there's a lot of control so that it mm -hmm. only can be used in the way that, that it's intended. Um, because, it, yeah, that's definitely very, very important. But, you know, many chemicals... And, and other tools can be thought of in, in the same kind of way. If they're used appropriately, they can do a lot of good. But a lot of technology in particular, if it's not, can, can be very bad. So it's, uh, it's all about making sure that only people who know what they're doing have access. And we normally experience radiation in our everyday lives too. Could you maybe give some examples of what that might be like? Sure, yeah, there's radioactivity all around us. Um, some of the people who have the highest natural exposure are pilots because they're mm. flying around in the upper atmosphere uh, where you get less, less shielding from the air. So there's natural cosmic radiation, um, there's natural uranium in soil, uh, natural radon, so things that, that are decaying anyway. Um, there's potassium-40 in bananas. <laughs> so, so there's definitely natural sources of radiation that, you know, we all, we all get and, and aren't, really, aren't really harmful. So you mentioned that this isotope production is sometimes a collaborative process where someone will actually irradiate the, the targets in one location and then ship them to you so that you can process them. That's that sounds really hard. <laughs> um, it can be very hard. And some of the biggest challenges just come from moving those irradiated targets around. So one of our biggest collaborators is in Russia. And they irradiate targets and package them. And they are flown to us in Los Alamos and then put on a truck in Albuquerque and driven up to the laboratory. This is like super special planes and No, and it's equipment. actually actually passenger aircraft. Wow. Oh wow. Um, <laughs> it's just uh, so obviously it's a very heavily regulated um, mm -hmm. transfer. Uh, you have very special containers that are tested so that if they're dropped or blown up or uh, rained on, they won't leak. <laughs> Or, or cause any issues, um, so, so it's, it is very safe. Um, but the pilots actually have the right to take that on their plane or not take that on their plane. And so hmm. sometimes uh, we can be expecting a shipment and it doesn't arrive because a pilot decided oh. they, they didn't want that hmm. on, their, on their aircraft. And when you have a, a short-lived isotope that, um, you know, you're, you're losing Mm -hmm. product every day mm -hmm. every minute so that's uh 
that, that doesn't make us very happy. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine not. It's a bummer for you, but also for patients who might be relying on it or yeah, who needs it. Yeah, absolutely. So we can't... Uh, we can't afford to be late with our shipments because then, you know, the doctors have patients in their clinics and they don't want to turn them away and mm-hmm. say, sorry, no isotope today. Mm-hmm. So we, we try and make sure the entire process is as reliable as it can be. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, earlier in an interview that y- you use um, a lot of the isotopes that we use are for imaging. Do you produce anything that it's also used for treatment? So right now at Los Alamos, um, all of the isotopes that we produce are for imaging. That's something that we would very much like to change. There's a tremendous need for more therapy isotopes in in the community. And so we're investigating a couple of different ones, um, including an isotope called actinium-225 that are of interest for targeted cancer therapy. So would like the holy grail be something that can image and target, like image and view a pharmaceutical at the same time? Or would there be kind of interactions that would make that not ideal? So it's really unlikely that one isotope would have the ability to do imaging and therapy. Mm -hmm. But there are cases where different isotopes of the same element could work as as a pair. They call that theranostics. And so those are of great interest for exactly the reason that you're talking about. So if you have uh, copper 67 and copper 64 are two such isotopes where one of them is an imaging isotope and the other one is a therapeutic. But the great thing about having a pair like that is you know you can have exactly the same compound as your, as your pharmaceutical. And so you know that exactly what you image is exactly what you're gonna treat. And, and that's very powerful because if you're trying to image with something slightly different, then there's no guarantee that your treatment isotope is going to exactly the same place in the body. That makes sense. So that's a really active area of research and uh, trying to find good pairs is, is not always obvious. So yeah, that was a really, really good question. So you mentioned the, the actinium research. Um, how's it going? So actinium-225 is an isotope that uh, is rather difficult to make, but this is one of the reasons why we're, we're tackling it at Los Alamos. Um, we have the, the right sort of proton accelerator to be able to do this. And so Um, Where it stands right now is really kind of in the proof of concept stage. And so we have, um, we've measured the fundamental nuclear data, we've made small targets, we've irradiated them, we've separated the actinium-225 and actually sent that material to evaluate, evaluators for testing. Um, So that, you know, that's some very excellent first steps. and, and it's, but it's taken a huge amount of effort, and, and it's not just us, it's Brookhaven National Laboratory and Oak Ridge National Laboratory as well. But now we're trying to scale up and to get to the point where instead of doing this once a quarter, we want to do it once a week, and we want to do much larger batches so that there's enough material to really enable the sorts of clinical studies that that need to happen with this isotope before it can really be used. And there's, um, well, let's just say that's not quite so easy. (laughs) We have our work cut out for us, but but we're we're working on it, definitely. Um, So I understand that not far from Los Alamos National Laboratory, there is a AAA baseball team the Albuquerque isotopes. isotopes. Yes. <laughs> and I was wondering if any members of the team have ever taken a tour of your lab, uh, or if, in the converse, you have free tickets to their games. In case you're wondering, Madeline and Ahita and I are just rolling our eyes. Look <laughs> <laughs> <Booker> shot. <laughs> Do you want to answer? Well, we have not toured anybody from the Isotopes team through our through our hot cells, but clearly that is something I, I need to pursue. Um, and uh, no, I'm sorry, I do not have free tickets. Oh, cross promotion, opportunity. 
Absolutely. Okay. Well, I just have one last question before we close up. But um, do you have any advice for young scientists or people interested in science that um, you could give us? <laughs> sure. I think, you know, the most important thing in science is to just try things, right? It's Science is experimental. So uh, sometimes things will work, sometimes things won't. But either way, you learn and you make progress and, and you you know, can work with, together with other people and hopefully push forward uh, new new things. So go forth and conquer. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, um, Dr. Eva Birnbaum from Los Alamos National Lab. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. <laughs> All right, welcome back to the election. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed that interview. We certainly did. As you can see, Adam really enjoyed it, even though he didn't get free tickets. I'm still waiting. Still waiting for that. <laughs> someday. 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 Um, but yeah, so Dr. Bermond was talking about um, a specific isotope, a radioisotope that we use for, um, that, that is used in the clinic for treating, not treating, for imaging um, cancers or other diseases in the body um so we were talking before the interview we were talking about cancer and you probably heard about radiation therapy as we said um and some of the a specific type of radiation therapy called systemic radiation therapy is a therapy that uses radioactive material that travels through the bloodstream to reach the cells that are all over the body mm -hmm. um so this is kind of what uh in a sense, kind of what Dr. Birnbaum was talking about, uh, using this uh, specific radioactive material that then can go and travel through the bloodstream to get to the specific type. And um, what she was talking about is imaging a specific type of cell or mm -hmm. tumor or organ or whatever. Um, but in systemic radiation therapy, as, as the name says, is for therapy use. Um, so there are three main radioactive isotopes that are used in therapy. They include iodine, strontium, and phosphorus. Um, so these can be, most of them are either uh, given, well, strontium is given via uh, an injection. Right. Um, iodine is actually given orally, um, and you'll see why in just a little bit. And phosphorus 32 is actually placed in or instilled into a body cavity. So they hmm. like have to go into that specific area and then they get it um, in there. So, um, yeah, what do we talk about? How about strontium? Strontium 82, 89. Well, strontium 89 is the one that I'm going to discuss. It's used in, tr uh, but I will mention strontium 82 also. So it's short-lived um, radioisotope that's used for bone cancers. So if you have painful, so if you have bone cancer that has metastasized. That is, that has spread through other parts of the body. Right. It can be very painful. Mm -hmm. And um, they can ad administer, as you said, via an injection, um, the strontium-89 into an affected area. And it will minimize the pain as well as start to fight the um the actual cancer. So it's kind of interesting that it also like handles the pain on mm. top of also treating the cancer. Maybe I'm just misreading this, <laughs> but <laughs> I think that's kind of cool that it's like therapeutic as, as in it gets rid of the cancer, but it also feels better. Mm -hmm. Well, the radiation, the radiation kills the cancer cells. Yes. And relieves the pain. Right. Double win. Who would have thought? Yeah. Well, okay. Here's here's why. So if you look at the periodic table, mm -hmm. um, you have calcium mm -hmm. in the periodic table, which is kind of what mostly composes our bones. Right. And if you go straight down from calcium, you have strontium. Oh, so it kind of behaves. So that's why it probably relieves a little bit of the... Mm -hmm of the pain because it's kind of the same thing as calcium-ish. Hmm. Um, it just happens to be radioactive. Well, the specific isotope happens to be radioactive. So so some interesting um, side effect is that the patients who have this injection have to 
uh, after they use the restroom, double flush because their urine will be radioactive. Ooh. Isn't that kind of cool? <laughs> mm. um, so Just things we don't have to think about every day. Okay, okay. But what's the half life of the half life is of strontium eighty nine uh-huh. is fifty point five days. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. So oh. it takes about five hundred days for most of the strontium to decay away. Uh-huh. So that's ninety nine point nine percent of the radioactive strontium. Five hundred days. So that's like over a, no. Yeah, that's over a year. Over a year. Yeah. So it'll be like a year and a half, almost almost two years. Oh, a year and a half. A year and a half. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um. Yes. So, so that's they strontium. Have to double flush. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting. So the the particles, the radioactive particles, will travel thir- 3.5 millimeters into the bone, but will travel 6.5 millimeters into tissue. Mm-hmm. So it'll go through tissue fine, but it kind of gets stuck in bone. Mm-hmm. Is kind of the idea. So and that's why we were able to treat it for bone cancer. Right. Strontium-82, which is uh, a different isotope of strontium, has a 25.5 half-life, so half the half-life of Mm strontium-89. And that's used to manufacture um, rubidium-82. So rubidium-82 is the positron emission topography or PET agent that we use when we're imaging um, the heart. Mm -hmm. So... Strontium, one atom, two, <laughs> two uses, <laughs> I yeah. guess, two well, isotopes. Well, as, as Dr. Bermall was talking about, it's it's all about the isotopes. Yes. And, and the neutrons and how you can generate them and kick them out and, you know, change a little bit. As long as you, and then you can change, if you change the protons, then mm-hmm. you get another, um, then you get another element uh, that then can, can help a lot, so... Yeah, so what, what what I think is kind of interesting is that strontium-89 mm-hmm. is for treatment. Strontium-82 is for imaging. And it's actually like second For different gen- things, actually. Yeah, and for different things. So it, it's kind of interesting that you're like strontium, but like you said, it's all about the isotope. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a song. It's all about the isotopes. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. I'm sorry. I'm not contributing. No, I think that's... Con- well, yeah. Unless, unless I can remember the song and sing it with that. That's true. Added, but I, I cannot. So. Okay. So actually there is, um, so it is it's strontium-89, and there's also another one that is used, another isotope that is used for uh, bone, the treatment of bone metastasis, mm-hmm. that is samarium-153, hmm. or lexidronium, if you've heard of that before. So um, that's like the drug name? Yeah, that's okay. the drug name, but um, those are kind of the two that... That you would probably hear about. Hmm. Um, so, okay. So, so strontium is one of them. Mm-hmm. Iodine was another iodine one. Iodine one thirty one. It's another one. Iodine one thirty one. So, um, iodine one thirty one is a particular isotope of iodine. You've certainly heard of iodine. It's mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that like thing salt. that's in your salt. Um, so, uh, we need normal iodine in a certain amount. That's why they add it to salt. But um, we don't need iodine-131, at least not most of the time. Uh, That's because it hates your thyroid uh, a lot. Um, And its medical (laughs) uses, yeah, are generally related to that fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an anti-thyroid isotope. It is uh, usually used in the treatment of Graves' disease, which is... um, Which is... uh, some in some fashion related to hyperthyroidism where it's overactive mm-hmm. this totally bl- i'm sorry to interrupt yes yeah. i just clicked because <laughs> so like salt is iodized i iodinized uh-huh. <laughs> we add yeah. iodine to salt right because it helps the thyroid yes mm-hmm. oh my god <laughs> so of so, course it's a so a radioisotope of iodine Duh. <laughs> targets and yeah. it, it basically this stuff ends up in your thyroid yeah. is what happens and that's you know for the same reason that normal iodine would but this stuff when it ends up in your thyroid it destroys it oh. uh, which is bad mm. normally unless you have hyperthyroidism and you need to destroy it a little bit 
uh, then a controlled dosage of this stuff will actually help to um, decrease the activity and total mass of the thyroid, hmm. which is uh, the general idea of using it. Um, it's a really fascinating um, thing to read about because they have they have to be so careful with the dosage. Like, they actually can't do a moderate dosage. It has to be, like, a lot or not at all. Because if they use just a little bit, it won't kill the cells effectively, and it might just mutate the DNA in those cells and turn them cancerous <laughs> and actually increase your risk of thyroid so cancer. So you either have to, like, completely so really bombard gotta, it. You've really got to get them. Yeah. Oh, wow. And here's so, the best part, though. You take that orally. Yeah. Because it's in the mm -hmm. thyroid, so you just whoop, yeah, yep. swallow it and then... Well, that iodine's going to end up there. I mean, it's going <laughs> to yeah. end up in your thyroid. That's... So, so you, yeah. can just, you can just take it yeah, and then that's it. Right down. <laughs> that's really no cool. Problem. There's actually uh, two other isotopes of iodine. So we have iodine-131, which is what Adam was talking about. There's mm -hmm. also iodine-123 and iodine-125. Um, these other two are mostly done for imaging. Mm -hmm. um, so imaging, again, of the thyroid. Um, one iodine one twenty three is also used for renal imaging, and also for imaging of Parkinson's disease. That's interesting. That mm -hmm. are those. Do you know if um, the renal imaging is taken orally also? That's also IV. That's IV. Okay. That's not orally. That makes more sense. Yep. Um, I would feel like it would just yeah, get like, stuck yeah, in the thyroid. All the, yeah, <laughs> all, the, yeah. The thyroid ones are are orally, and then the other gotcha. ones are um, IV. Because they have to travel to, you know, where you want to go. But, yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. So, that's, I, I did enjoy very much seeing the the connections being made there that I had not really <laughs> realized when I started talking. So, thank you. I don't, <laughs> yeah, that. that just kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh, it's a goiter. <laughs> like, yeah, have, yeah, that's why we use it. <laughs> that's the stuff. Yep, same so. as with fluorine. On, That's why we use it. On related, uh, a related note, um, don't uh, expect to find a heck of a lot of iodine-131 just out there hmm. normally in your right. iodine. It is mm -hmm. a byproduct of um, some pretty uh, pretty wild processes, and you're not likely to just run into the stuff every day. So hmm. it has to be specially made and produced at places like, I presume, Los Alamos National Labs. But... All right, and with that, we thank you for listening to The Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. Have a good Sunday.